morning, everyone. Well, World War I was one of the largest and most gruesome wars in human history. In fact, it's hard for us to really grasp these numbers, but it's estimated that 9 million soldiers and 7 million civilians lost their lives as a direct result of combat in World War I. And even worse, the aftermath of the war is said to have led to the deaths of between 50 and 100 million people. Uh, one of the reasons that that war was so brutal and terrible was uh, something called trench warfare. And this was a style of battle where each side would dig these deep trenches to defend themselves against the others with the area that was in between being known as no man's land. Uh, But this strategy would often leave the fighting in a stalemate. And so the only hope of victory would be to somehow figure out a way to get around and flank your enemy or just wait a long time and try to wear down their resources enough that they were no longer able to fight. The conditions in these trenches were horrible. Uh, They were absolutely filthy and often flooded with rainwater and, and teeming with frogs. There was nothing to do in them except for to to try to stay warm and dry and to wait for something to happen, which sometimes would take months and months. And the trenches were swarming with rats that were always uh, competition for the soldiers' food, and everyone was infested by lice. And, And many soldiers lost their lives not from the battle, but from disease and from um wounds that that they would receive with no antibiotics to treat them. They they hadn't been invented yet. But one of the worst case scenarios would be to be sent over the top, out from the trench on a frontal assault of the enemy. And, And a soldier who attempted to cross no man's land was almost certain to die. Trench warfare, I really think, was one of the the worst kinds of suffering that a person could ever experience on earth. And yet, on Christmas Eve, on December 24th, 1914, the very first year of this great war, something absolutely incredible happened on the battlefield. Uh, Many historians believe that it would ultimately involve 100,000 troops on each side who were holed up that night in their trenches. And, And here's what happened. This is a true story. On the German line that night, something very simple happened. Someone began to sing a Christmas carol. And then other Germans from there joined in. And just like the wave in, the base, in a baseball game, it spread right down the German line. And when this Christmas carol was finished, on the other side, the, the British and the Belgian and the French soldiers all responded by singing a Christmas carol of their own. And this went back and forth and back and forth for some time that night until finally one of the allied soldiers took their turn and they began to sing, O come all ye faithful. And as the allies sang, something extraordinary happened. The Germans join in. And it's hard to imagine the scene this, this night in these horrible, grimy trenches, but But just think about what those two armies were singing to each other about. Think of the lyrics of that song. O come, all ye faithful, 
joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. So there you have a scene where in the middle of the bloodiest and most brutal war that had ever happened in human history to that point, you've got these two enemies singing to one another of the joyful triumph of the birth of Christ. And and the next morning, uh, in some places along the line, uh, soldiers began to call out to, to the other side, Merry Christmas! And some of the bravest of those soldiers actually crept out of their trenches and met in the middle in no man's land where they exchanged gifts of uh, cigarettes and alcohol and hats and and buttons. In fact, one report says that a British soldier actually received a haircut from a German barber. And there was another place where an improvised game of, of soccer occurred. Well, that was Christmas. The next day they would go back to killing each other once again. But for that one small moment in time, World War War I had been interrupted by something much more significant, and that is the birth of Christ. Well, the passage that we're looking at together in the book of Isaiah chapter 9 pictures a very similar situation. It is the interruption of war by Christmas. The book of Isaiah in chapter 1 begins with the tidings uh, from Isaiah, not of peace, but of a terrible conflict that is coming. Uh, Isaiah the prophet tells his own people, the, the children of Israel, that as a result of their idolatry and their rebellion and their hard-heartedness against God, that a season of judgment and discipline is nearly upon them. God is going to raise up for them enemy nations who will come to destroy them. Isaiah tells them that that war is on the horizon, and it is a war that they will not win. God has made up his mind, and death and destruction is in his hand. And yet, when you get to Isaiah chapter 9, what Isaiah announces is that hope and compassion is in his other hand. That in spite of all of this, God is going to do something in the future that will lead to a restoration, not just of harmony within Israel, but of global harmony and prosperity. And that these two things, this experience, would never end in all of history. Just look at verse 1 in Isaiah 9, if you're there. He writes, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Skip down to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Well, World War I ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. 
And you can imagine how that felt for those men who were in the trenches. They could finally get home. It was finally over. They were finally done with this. And they made it. And yet, that peace would only be temporary. Anyone who's read a history book knows that World War II would arrive just 21 years later. Be back in the same spot again. But what we have here in the book of Isaiah is is the announcement not just of a ceasefire, not just of a temporary end of hostilities, but what Isaiah is talking about is an everlasting peace. He's talking about a peace that will permanently end all war. Everlasting freedom from oppression, he says. Everlasting joy and gladness. The season of harvest forever. And the final destruction of all tools and weapons of combat. Those things will be useless. No one will need them. It is coming, Isaiah promises. It's really coming. And it leaves us to ask the question that if this is true... And and by the way, this is coming for us too. How will it come? How will it get here? What what will bring it about? Certainly this is not something that will just happen on its own. If it was going to happen on its own, we've we've had thousands of years of human history for it to take place. It it must have a cause. And, And Isaiah concludes that yes, certainly it does have a cause. He writes about the cause in verse 6. He says, for to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. The cause of this everlasting peace, Isaiah says, will be the birth of a child. Now, I have children. And I have to say that it would have to be a very special child indeed to accomplish this. Right? I've got a wonderful children. You have wonderful children. But I don't know of any child who is capable of producing everlasting peace. Certainly not any child that I know. But Isaiah, of course, is not speaking of any ordinary child. He's speaking of a child, we're we're about to learn, who is very, very unique. He's speaking of the child that is at the center of that Christmas carol that led to that temporary ceasefire among the soldiers in World War I on Christmas Eve. And one day, Isaiah promises, that same child is going to bring a much greater peace on earth. Peace that will last forever and ever. And to prove that this child is capable of accomplishing such an impossibly tall order, Isaiah provides for us four titles that describe the character of this child. This son whom he says is going to be given to us, to this world, by God. He's going to be called by four names, and each one of these names expresses a part of the nature of his character. So he says that this child's name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. I'm, I'm excited for this month with us because what we're going to do, as, as Tom mentioned before, is we're going to have an opportunity to investigate what all of these titles mean, what they teach us about Jesus And how knowing what they mean, believing what they teach us, impacts 
our lives in the day-to-day, how it gives us hope and, and confidence, how it challenges us and encourages us. And today we're going to begin with the first title, this title that Isaiah gives for this child, Wonderful Counselor. Jesus will be, Isaiah says, a wonderful counselor. So what does that mean? Well, let's think first about what a counselor is. Uh, Most of us have the idea of a guide or of an advisor or some sort of an expert come to mind. And I think that that's really about right. Uh, Simply put, a counselor is someone who knows what to say or what to do or where to go or how to help. And if you ask someone for, for their counsel or if you uh, make an appointment with a professional counselor, what you're doing is you're asking them to support you in some area of your life, believing that they possess the required wisdom and knowledge and insight to walk with you through a particular problem. And a counselor can be incredibly helpful. I, I think that wise people know when to take advantage of them. Well, the other night, uh, my wife Katie and I were watching television And uh, on it, there was a man who had a very, very serious, very difficult problem that he was facing. And he received the counsel of one of the main characters in the show. It was a man whose name is Jack. And Jack gave exactly the right advice to this struggling man. I mean, it was just the thing that he needed to hear. And he said it in just the right way and with just the right tone. It was like a perfect situation of someone giving somebody else counsel. And the man who was struggling was so deeply moved by Jack's counsel that his entire life changed just out of this, you know, one minute and 30 second conversation. Now, I've noticed as I've watched this show that Jack does something like this just about every episode. And i got to admit, it's starting to get a little bit annoying. This guy never makes mistakes. He, he always knows what to say. He always knows what to do. And so I said that kind of sarcastically to my wife as, as we were watching, you know, after we watched this scene, I said, wow, he always knows what to say, doesn't he, honey? And she turned to me and she said, yeah, she said, he's the Messiah figure of the show. But you know, the truth is that the reason that Jack always knows exactly what to say is that he's the creation of a team of highly paid professional writers who have crafted every single one of his words over the course of weeks and maybe months. In fact, this team has full control over every aspect of Jack's life and over everyone else's too. They're they're in charge of everything. That there's nothing that exists within the universe of the show that they don't know about, and they have the power to bring about in Jack's life and the people that he comes in contact with anything. So, of course, Jack always says the right thing. It's in the script, right? There is absolutely nothing that can go wrong. But obviously, for us, life isn't that clean, is it? When somebody asks you for your counsel and they've got a particularly thorny problem, don't you wish you had the script? I mean, don't you wish that you just knew exactly the thing to say that would impact them the way that it impacted this guy, Jack, so that their entire life could be changed because of the counsel that you gave them? And don't you wish that somebody could do that for you? 
Don't you wish that there was a script, the right thing to say and do it? All you had to do was read it and do it. Well, human beings vary in their wisdom and in their understanding. Some people are more knowledgeable and gifted and helpful to counsel other people. But there is no human being on earth who is even close to being like Jack. Because nobody has a script. There is nobody who always knows what to do and always knows what to say. And if we go looking in life for some person to be our Messiah-like figure, or if we put the pressure on ourselves to be that Messiah-like figure for somebody else, we or they will always be disappointed. And, And usually it's both. But what Isaiah tells us is that God has given unto us in the person of his son a counselor who is the actual Messiah. Someone who is an expert in absolutely every facet of human life because he himself created all things. And someone who knows in every circumstance exactly what to do because he holds in his hand not only the past, but the future too. And Isaiah says, this is a counselor who not only knows the span of all things, but is actually in charge of the span of all things. And I want you to notice that this counselor is described with the attribution of a very important adjective. Jesus, he says, is a certain kind of counselor. He's not an ordinary run-of-the-mill counselor. The kind of counselor that Jesus is, is a wonderful one. Isaiah says he is wonderful in his counsel. Now, we toss around the word wonderful all the time, right? At dinner, we we say things like, hmm, this asparagus is wonderful. (laughs) At least that's what my children say anytime they're served it. (laughs) Actually, I asked my son this morning if uh, he liked asparagus, and he said, is that some kind of a bird? (laughs) Like a red-winged asparagus or something like that? Well, I think it's time tonight that he learned the truth at dinner. Or when the copy machine at work has been jammed for like 20 minutes and somebody goes over and they kick the paper tray with their foot and all of a sudden it works, we say, oh, wonderful. Wonderful is a word that's worth about a nickel to us. We use it when something reasonably good but still rather ordinary happens. And that is not the meaning in this passage at all. In this verse, the word wonderful signifies something that is extraordinarily awesome. Something that, in fact, even beyond that, not only is it awesome, but it means it's actually difficult for us to comprehend. Have you ever seen something like that before? Something that you looked at and saw, but it was just incomprehensible to you? You you couldn't figure it out? It didn't make sense? I uh, I watched a video once of a street magician and he walked over to the the windshield of just this random car that was parked on the street and he found on the car a dead housefly that was lying upside down. And he put it in the palm of his hand and without the camera stopping, because I was watching for stopping, without the camera stopping, he took the dead fly and he breathed on it like that. And I waited a second 
And the fly started to twitch. And then the fly actually flipped over onto its feet. It came back to life and it flew away. And I was amazed. I got to admit, I said, how did something like that happen? How could a guy bring a dead fly back to life again? I could not figure it out until I looked online. (laughs) And online, I looked it up. I discovered the secret to this trick is to catch a live housefly and put it in the freezer. You freeze the fly, then you take the fly, you put it upside down on the windshield, and when you pick up the fly and you breathe your breath onto the fly, the heat of your breath thaws the fly out and it comes back to life again. Try it at home. (laughs) It's a very simple trick. But you know, if you don't know how it works, it is really hard to make sense of what is happening. Your brain sort of runs out of ideas. The wiring of your comprehension kind of short circuits. And, And really, that's the idea here. That's what Isaiah is getting at. Jesus is wonderful in a way that is extraordinarily difficult for us to grasp. He knows things that we couldn't possibly understand. He sees things to which you and I are are totally blind. We we have no idea. And he can do things that we can't even think to imagine. In fact, if there were any word that you could use right here to replace the word wonderful, it would be the word supernatural. And the the idea of, of the term is ultimately the idea that this child will be a supernatural child. In other words, what, she, what, what Isaiah is getting at is this will be God himself. God is coming, and he will be a wonderful counselor. Now, what does all of this mean for us? How does this help us? Well, what it means for us is that whatever the counsel of the Son of God is, we would be absolutely crazy not to embrace it with delight. If he truly is the wonderful, supernatural counselor that this passage speaks of, then, oh, it serves us to listen to him, to believe him, to trust him, and whatever it is that he says to follow that counsel. Well, I heard a very solid piece of wisdom spoken by a prince recently. Uh, It was Will Smith who said it, the fresh prince of uh, of Bel-Air. His royal freshness, I think he goes by. Well, in an interview, somebody asked him what he had learned from all of his travels all over the world, and and he kind of paused for a second, and he said, you know, my answer to that would be, the thing I've learned is that every single person on earth has problems. Myself and everyone else No one is immune to the problems of life. And that's actually a pretty obvious truth. It's very true. Life comes with an array of problems, and every stage of life that you wander into brings about new ones. Growing up is painful. Singleness is confusing. Marriage is complex. Parenting is demanding. Aging is discouraging. And dying is heartbreaking. Life 
at every single stage is very, very problematic. And if you feel a sense of insecurity in life or inadequacy in life as as you face any of these realities and the gamut of of all the other ones in life, what I want to encourage you by saying is join the club. Join the club. In fact, if you're new around here, I would really invite you to join our church. Because at our church, I think you will find a group of people who readily admit their inadequacies, who acknowledge that life is hard, and that none of us have all the answers. But we are grateful that we have discovered one answer, and and it's the answer that matters most. And that is that in the face of all of our weakness, all of our insecurities, all of the issues that come about in our lives as a result of our problems, we do not have to be our own messiahs. We don't have to be the messiahs for other people either. We do not always need to know what to say or what to do or where to go or how to help. Sometimes we just don't. But the only reason that we're okay with this is because there is one thing that we do know. We know who we have. We know who it is that God has given to us. We have a son, Isaiah says, who is a wonderful counselor to us. And man, do we need him. Those uh, soldiers who fought in, in World War I, who... who were in those trenches, who fought those battles, who, who faced terror and tragedy of, of so many kinds, those people understood just how weak and ineffective a person could feel. Just how fragile they could feel. I mean, what do you do when it's 1914, you're 18 years old, you've been drafted into the first great war, And six months later, you find yourself lying in a filthy trench somewhere far from home in the Western Front. And you are freezing cold. You cannot stay warm. You're covered in lice, itching and scratching. You're near despair. And you've got an injury on your hand that feels like it's on fire, but you have no medication to treat it. And the rumor is that any day now, in in spite of all logic, you're going to be sent over the top to what will surely be your destruction. And if you obey that order, you know you are going to die. But if you disobey that order, you know you're going to die anyways. Your death, you know, is only a matter of how and when, and there's no counsel that anyone can give you to change this. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. There's no place to go. And in this position, you are faced with the fact that your life is as fragile as an eggshell. Well, I think that that modern people in peaceful times get little tastes of this too, but but it's only tastes. It, It usually happens when we brush up against cancer or poverty, or, or violent crime. We get a taste of it when we drive past a car accident and we think, oh, that, that could have been us. 
or we watch the evening news, we feel this sense of personal vulnerability coming towards us. But we hope that at some point, society can get things figured out. That the the doctors or the scientists or the politicians or, or the therapists, whoever it is, will eventually solve the problems of the world. And so we console ourselves with the thought that somewhere out there, there's a group of experts who's really, really hard at work on whatever problem this is, and I'm sure they've got to be making progress. And then we let our minds turn to other things. But the Bible breaks to us the news of the grim reality that human counsel, human wisdom and ingenuity and creativity, this is so important to acknowledge, will always fall short. The Bible teaches that when we have problems the size of this world, we can only solve them with a solution that is the size of God himself. The only way the problems of this world get solved is with something that is beyond us. Something, in fact, that is incomprehensible. Something that must be supernatural. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is a wonderful, supernatural counselor sent into this world who knows exactly what to do. And he knows exactly how to help. And he is willing to do the only thing that will help. He doesn't just know what to do, but he's willing to do it. And he's willing to do it himself. I want to point you to to, to two verses in the book of Colossians. This is Colossians chapter 19 and 20. I'm going to put it on the screen Behind me, it's on page 983. If you want to turn there and just rejoice in it, feel free to. I want to start at at, at verse uh, 19 and just explain it. It says in verse 19, For in him, that is Jesus, Paul is talking about Jesus here, he says, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And what that is, just another way of, of saying is that Jesus is wonderful. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell within him. He is supernatural in the same way that God is because Jesus is God himself. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile. And what that means is to bring together something that's been broken apart. God is pleased to use Jesus to reconcile to himself all things either on earth or in heaven. What that teaches us is that this son was sent, Jesus was given to restore a world that has been broken. He was given to restore broken human beings into a joyful relationship with God, which in turn will bring about that everlasting peace that Isaiah talks about here in Isaiah chapter 9. To bring about the wiping of every tear so that human hearts can be joyful and triumphant forevermore. But how? How will he do this? We know what it is that's going to happen. Peace on earth forevermore. 
We know who's going to accomplish this, this child, this wonderful counselor. But how will he do it? How will this peace be brought about? Well, this verse in Colossians tells us exactly the answer. Look at verse 20. Paul writes, It will be brought about by making peace by the blood of his cross. That's how he's going to do it. The cross. Jesus' wonderful counsel, his solution to all of our problems is the cross. His own death the spilling of his own blood. Jesus can solve our problems by taking our problems upon himself and dying for them. You know, Will Smith did make a very good observation that everyone has problems. But you know, it's a a much harder thing to answer is why everyone has problems. Why is it true that every single person on earth has serious problems in their life, including Will himself? I mean, that guy's life has been incredible. He is the fresh prince. Why do we have problems? Why does Will have problems? The Bible answers that question too, and that's a much harder question to answer. It says the reason we all have problems is because we are all sinners. If you want to have a perfect world, you've got to have perfect people who are living the way the world was designed to be lived in. But we all fall short of that. And what many people don't realize is that to sin against God, to turn your back on God and and to go a, a different direction, which is something that every person has done, is to declare war on God. That's how God sees it. It's a declaration of war. It's saying to God, I don't need you. I don't need life to work the way you designed it to work. I can do it over here by myself. Let me say what I want to say. Let me do what I want to do. Let me go where I want to go. I can help myself. I can take care of myself on my own. Thank you very much. I'll call you if I need you, if I get into a jam. That is a declaration of war against God. But the problem with that is that it is a war that none of us can hope to win. And it is a war, this tells us, that will cost us everything. But Jesus' wonderful counsel to us is to let him pay that cost. To let him sacrifice himself for us. To let him be the bridge that reconciles us back to God. And then to trust for the rest of our lives that this will always be enough. That he will always be enough to do that. That he is so wonderful and his blood is so precious and that the cross is so powerful that nothing can overcome it. His counsel to us is to cling to him for the rest of our lives and to never turn away and to delight in his counsel, to share his counsel with others so that they would know it too, to to walk with him and enjoy him and learn more about him so that we can experience more and more the wonderful joy that comes from the peace that he has brought through the cross.
you know what some of the best news in life is? It's for those who have trusted in that, God releases you from having to be your own Messiah. God releases you from having to figure out what to say, what to do, how to make life work all by yourself. You're released from that. You don't have to be your own Messiah. And he tells us that when we learn to view all of our problems in singleness and in growing up and in parenting and in marriage and in old age and dying, every single difficulty that we face across the whole spectrum of life, every trench that we end up stumbling into because we've made a stupid decision and we can't figure out how to crawl our way out again. Every heartache that we read about on the news, when we learn to view those things through the wisdom of our wonderful counselor, who Isaiah says was given to us in Bethlehem, only so that he could die for us on Calgary, then all of those struggles, all of those difficulties that that wage war within our hearts, you know what God wants to do? He wants to interrupt them with the same kind of peace that Isaiah is talking about here. And I really hope you've experienced this. I, I really hope that you believe that you can experience this. I hope that you can believe, even when you're in a pit, even when you're in the trenches, even when life does not make sense and you don't know what to do and you don't know where to go and you don't know what to say, that the Lord can bring you peace in that moment. That may not be your experience every single day of your life. But this passage in Isaiah promises us that there is a day coming when it will be. There is a day coming when God is going to do these things that he's promised here in a full way and that peace on earth will come and it will be everlasting. But it is our wonderful counselor, not human ingenuity, not me figuring out how to do all the right things, not me thinking that somehow I can please God on my own through my own goodness and action or make up for my sins of the past. It will be accomplished only through the wonderful wisdom of Christ, which says, let me take your sin upon me and let me bring you back to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful wisdom of your word and for the wonderful counsel of your son. We thank you that he is not only our wonderful counselor, but he is our mighty God. He is our everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. And we pray that over these next few weeks that you would really teach us what all of these things mean. We pray that you would stretch our minds and that you would enlarge our hearts and to give us wisdom not only to understand these things, but that we might apply them. And we just confess to you this morning that we are truly so weak and inadequate in life. We don't want to face that. We we don't want to think about our limitations and, and liabilities. But we pray that we would know and believe this morning that your son is our wonderful counselor. The one who always knows what to do. 
the one who knows the beginning from the end because he created all things. And we pray that in our fear and uncertainty that we would put our little hands into your big hand and that we would trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.